Listener Production. Emma Murray is a high-performance mind coach with her work being most well-known as the secret weapon behind Richmond Football Club's three recent AFL premierships. Working with a stable of footballers, Olympic athletes, Formula One drivers, CEOs and business owners, Emma has created a unique mental framework called high-performance mindfulness. In this heartfelt conversation, we discuss how to use mindfulness when going through hard times, how in a split second her world changed forever, and the power of reframing the stories we tell ourselves. Life is really rugged. It's really difficult. And I feel like we leave our house every day and we step out into this storm. We get knocked around in this storm. We get wet, we get bowled over. And we come home and it was not great. It wasn't fun. I was a bit cold, I was a bit wet, but I get up and I do it again the next day. For some people, something happens and in a moment, that storm gets upgraded to a hurricane. When you're in a hurricane, you have no choice but to find this stillness in the centre or you will not survive it. It's very easy to finally get still, finally get present, not attached to shit, because if you did, you would not survive. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Emma Murray's company High Performance Mindfulness offers courses in school, sport and everyday life. This conversation with Emma focuses on mindfulness, but also the account of her family tragedy, where for the first time she reveals a story that brought her, myself and my producer to tears. Emma is brave, wise and someone we can all learn a lot from. My hope is that this conversation inspires you to re-evaluate your potential, find power in yourself and limitless capabilities. Now, this is an interesting one because I was having my makeup done a couple of weeks ago, which, you know, I don't often get done. And my makeup artist said to me, there is this wonderful lady that you should get on your podcast, Emma Murray. And I was like, oh, yeah. And, you know, I get told that nearly every day, (laughs) like from someone, you know, you should have this person on your podcast. And usually like 99% of the time I'm like, no, I don't think so. And um, anyway, I looked you up and I thought to myself, how do I not know about this lady? She is incredible. And so that 1%, that recommendation, thank you, beautiful Zara, has, because she's your makeup artist yeah. as well. Which um, makes me sound like I get it, my makeup done. Same, same. <laughs> it makes us sound so glamorous, yes. which, um, no. you know, this doesn't happen yeah. often. Uh, so I'm happy that she brought us both together. Oh, yes. There you go. I didn't know that story. Yeah. So I want to start off, you talk about a lot of things to do with mindfulness, mindset, all that kind of stuff. How did you get into this sort of work? Yeah, I I was actually reflecting on this uh, recently because I'm doing some work with um, the Kookaburras, the Olympic men's hockey team. So um, I, I do a lot of work in that sports space and I was creating visualisations with the group and I was creating this daily journal I wanted them to do. And I sat there and I was thinking about because I was an athlete. Now, no one knows my name as an athlete, so I clearly <laughs> didn't. Clearly wasn't a great athlete. Um, but I, I played, I was at the Australian Institute of Sport and I played under 21 Australian. And I was reflecting. Oh, netball, yeah. sorry. Yeah. And I was reflecting on the tools that I was preparing for the kookaburras. And I thought, how would I would have taken this as an athlete? And I thought, I would not have invested in these at all. And that's probably why you don't know my name as an athlete because I I wouldn't have invested in those tools. And so when I was younger and an athlete, I never struggled with anxiety. I never 
You know, I had a great upbringing, went to a great school. I never looked at that side of life and I had a lot of injuries as an athlete and it just sort of petered out and I moved into the coaching side of uh, of things in netball still. Mm. And literally one day I was at um, my coaching mentor's house. She had a bookshelf and on her bookshelf was a book called Sacred Hoops, which was written by Phil Jackson, mm. coach of the Chicago Bulls at the time of, you know, Michael Jordan. And I read this book and in this book he he's effectively saying that his job as a, a coach in the NBA was to manage these athletes. If he could get them to be still and present in the moment, then anything that Michael Jordan could come up with in that moment was going to be better than anything he as a coach could teach him or tell him to do. So he really felt it was his job to get them present in the moment. And... He talked about this term mindfulness and mindfulness was not a word that we heard. This was like 25 years ago. It was not a word that was used a lot. It wasn't commonplace like it is now. And uh, at a similar time, my mum had been to the GP. She had high blood pressure. The GP actually recommended she learn some sort of meditation. And I said, you know what, mum, I've read this book. Let's go together. And we went to a lady's house, uh, a local lady's house, she she would have been in her, you know, late 70s, early 80s. And she had this whole group of people, some who were trying to fall pregnant, some who were trying to lower blood pressure. He was I as a sports coach interested in mm. wanting to tap into whatever Phil Jackson had talked about. And it opened my world. I, I, I literally felt like someone had given me a gift that I didn't know I needed. What form of meditation did you learn? It was mindfulness. Yeah. Um, and she had learned from the Gawler Foundation, which is now closed. It closed over COVID. Ian Gawler, who started the Gawler Foundation, he, um, when he was a uni student, he had cancer and he lost his leg to bone cancer and, and got very heavily invested in meditation. Mm. And um, then from there he studied, you know, from Buddha, you know, Buddhism and everything else and started the Gawler Foundation. That's where she learnt. It's where I ended up um, doing my first study of it based off my experience with her. But I didn't know I needed any help in that side of life. I was literally going because I thought it would make me a better sports coach and all of a sudden... It was like my eyes had been opened up to this concept of being present but really not attaching to stuff in mm. the present moment. And, and I really I resist using language like that because for a long time I was very, what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean when they use language like non-attachment and mm. non-judgmental? But really to be in the moment without actually attaching to what people think or what, you know, the outcome or, you know, what things mean was completely freeing. And I just went on a journey from there. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, one thing I've really grappled with in like getting my head around it is like, the, you know, the Buddha says all suffering comes from attachment. And, you know, I remember Eckhart Tolle saying that he works in such an amazing way where I think he has very minimal attachment, if any, like he's trained the mm. mind, but he's, you know, next level phenomenal. And he had this guy come up to him one day and he was standing next to a staff member and the man was just went, came and was saying something to him and then he left. And then the staff member said to him, oh, this and that about the guy and whatever. And Eckhart was like, what it just is. Like that conversation happened and it's gone. Yeah. Like I'm not analysing anything that that man said because that's in the past now. We are so quick as humans to attach things to everything. Yeah. And we don't even realise that we're doing it half the time. Well, not only do we not even realise that we're doing it. We don't even understand what that means. Mm. That's where I started this journey. What, do, what does that even mean to attach? And it really hit me in the face when I did my first teacher training at the Gawler Foundation. And it was my first experience of the silent. The whole retreat wasn't a silent retreat. Yeah. But there were elements that that were. And I remember the first morning of a silent morning and walking into a room and you can't speak, 
but how desperately you wanted to gesture at the person. Mm. Like, I see you, I acknowledge you, I like you, do you like me? You know, what are we, What is, it, is everyone seeing me? I'm seeing them. And just not even being able to raise your eyebrows at someone or smile at them or connect with them in any way and really deeply understanding that I'm trying to engage in that connection as a way to attaching to what they think of me and, you know, what I think of them. And it was a, it really made me think how often in life we just create layers upon layers upon layers of stuff that we don't need to. So when you're having those ruminating thoughts, which we all have, and you're, you know, lying there, it could be at night time, could be in the day, and the, the thought is going over and over and over, and there is a part of you that probably knows that it's not true, you know, but you still can't get it out of your head. What are the best ways to be able to not attach to them and, and allow that thought to kind of dissipate? Traditional mindfulness is what that would look like is, you know, we we talk in mindfulness about letting those thoughts go and they're like clouds <laughs> yeah, yeah. passing by or it's a train and you don't hop on the train, yeah, yeah. you know. That has always <laughs> really frustrated me because, you know, I, I've never sort of... I'm, I'm a person who... Well, tell me how to do it. If you tell me how to do it, then I'll do it. Like, yeah. give me a step by step. And I think through me working with young athletes, I've had to create a step by step process. Mm. Um, it's grounded in mindfulness, but it's a little bit stickier and grittier mm. and easier to follow the bouncy ball. But the first thing that I would say to someone is you actually have to catch that you're doing it. A lot of the time we're even unaware that we're doing it. Becoming conscious. Yeah, Yeah. actually, no. And a a great game that I get a lot of people to start with is a game called Catch Your Attention. Actually go through your day starting to catch when your attention drifts off into that thought bubble. Mm. When I first played that game, it really was an eye-opener for me. I remember walking the dog... And I would catch myself, you know, 15 minutes Mm. deep down into a scenario. I'm saying this, they're saying that, this is going to happen. I'm rehearsing every word. I mean, that was never going to play out. It never did play out. But I had spent the entire time of this walk deep in that. And what people don't understand, and this is the gift I feel like I learned when my eyes were open to mindfulness, Yes, okay, I'm deep down in a story and a narrative that is most likely never going to play out. That narrative is creating... My mind doesn't know the difference between real or imagined, so I'm having a physiological response to that narrative. My heart rate's going, my shoulders are getting tense. I'm going through all the emotions Mm. of that confronting conversation that I'm probably never going to have. So that's the second thing that's going on. But the third thing is I'm actually missing the feeling of the sun <laughs> on my face. I'm missing trees, watching my yeah. dog play with another dog. I'm missing that colourful bird that just, you know, is sitting in the tree and firing me. I'm missing all of this great stuff and I'm deep in this scenario and then I get home and I think to myself, oh, when it just gets to the weekend, then I'll relax, then I'll something yeah. good will happen. You know, then I'll be able to have some time out. Hang on, you were just on a 30-minute walk through, you know, beautiful trees with your dog and you missed the yeah. entire thing because you are up in your mind playing out this scenario. So the very first thing is you actually have to catch it. Mm. You know, and yeah, it's easy to catch at three o'clock in the morning when it's dark and I can actually know that my mind's busy. But what you're not catching is when you drive from home to work and you've missed the whole drive and you've somehow arrived where you arrived because you're deep down in all of this stuff and all of this stuff is creating a stress response in you. Mm. And we wonder why we are so stressed because we are up in this imaginary life of replaying things that have happened in the past or going into things that haven't yet happened and we're having a stress response to those things. So catch it. But here's the thing. Here's my biggest journey has taught me. You are not going to turn off those thoughts. You are not going to be able to shift off those thoughts until you actually accept that you can't 
control any of this stuff. You have to accept that it's normal to be worried about that meeting that you missed today or Mm. that deadline that you've mucked up or the mistake that you made. Or it's normal at three o'clock in the morning to be worried about what you have on the next morning. So we have to go through a process of acceptance. I like to say it's like your mind. You know, we've got this incredible inbuilt survival system it's like a warning, it's like a smoke alarm that's going off, you know, warning, 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 you've got five meetings tomorrow and, you know, how are you going to fit them all in? You've got all those emails you haven't answered and, you know, you said that stupid thing today to someone. It's like warning you. Our greatest threat to our survival right now is being outs from the tribe, is being disconnected from people. So your mind's got a lot to warn you about. Mm. People might not like you for this. People might reject you for that. So this smoke alarm is going off. This is what I don't get about the cloud analogy or the not getting on the train. No, this is a warning system. Mm. It's trying to keep you safe here. And until I sort of go to that alarm and say, I get it, like, but I can't control it. It's so funny. It reminds me of this beautiful quote by this Sufi poet called Rumi who says, why do you leave yourself in jail when the door is open? Mm. And, you know, I had the exact same thing just recently when I was flying home from a trip and something had happened and I was quite annoyed at, at a person for doing something. I was sitting in the seat you know, on the plane thinking about this conversation I was going to have with this guy next minute. And, you know, I'm a very conscious person, <laughs> but next minute my heart is boom, yeah. boom, 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 and I feel anxiety rush over me. And I'm thinking to myself, what am I doing? Mm. I've spent on this beautiful holiday. I'm coming home on the plane why am I thinking about this? Why am I thinking about what I'm going to say to him and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that? Sarah, come on. Yeah. You know, and I kind of acknowledged it. And then a part of me thought, because I love visualisation, that's been a big part of my practice for over a decade, I thought, geez, that visualisation is really good for the positive and the negative. You know, I've always known that, you know, the the mind doesn't know the difference between what's happening in real life if you're having these thoughts with your eyes shut, eyes open, and what is actually going on. So that just shows the power of visualisation when you really want to achieve something, how well you can do it if you're Mm. putting your whole mind and energy into that and, you know, looking at the scenario in your head because I was doing it from a negative perspective, not meaning to, and my whole body was having a reaction to it. Absolutely, yeah. So that conscious, becoming consciously aware is such a critical piece because, I mean, we can't change what we don't even know is happening. You know, burnout is a real thing at Mm. the moment. It's, um, you know, we need to take that really seriously and organisations need to take it seriously. We do um, ourselves. And burnout is different to just anxiety or stress. Burnout is where we have been exposed. It's a chronic stress condition. Mm. We used to see it in first responders and people that are exposed to chronic stress over long periods of time. But that is all of us now because we are exposing ourselves to the chronic stress of our mind that is constantly sitting in that future or the past and we are sitting in this stress response all day every day and the most difficult thing is it's become so normal for us Mm. We we don't and that's why I'm saying you have to catch it and I really recommend to people take some time to identify what are the warning signs for you that Mm. when you've gone into that place, like, do you get really whingy? Do you get passive aggressive? Do you become cynical? Do you yell at your kids? Do you retreat and go quiet in meetings? Do you, what is the warning signs that you have gone into that stress cycle and you've gone into those unhelpful thoughts? If you can't catch it, then you cannot do anything about it. Mm. So really start there. When it comes to mindfulness, you know, we've all heard that word. It's like, you know, been the buzzword for many Mm. years now and like, you know, got to be mindful, mindful eating, you know, (laughs) mindful this, mindful that. And I think most people listening to this podcast 100% know what mindfulness is and they get it, but then when it comes to being mindful, it's quite difficult. So, so difficult. I'd love to know how we can really hone into this whole mindfulness piece because I know mindfulness, like, you know, the whole idea that there is no suffering in the present moment, right? You know, anxiety is fear of the future and depression is dwelling on the past. But in this present moment, that is that is all we have and it's always 
going to be okay. But what, from that mindfulness piece, how do we really focus so we can feel that beauty that really is in the present moment? I mean, there's just so much on what what you just said in that in that piece, um, and you've mentioned a couple of times now that, that there's no suffering in the present moment. You know, I remember the first time that I heard that concept, and um, it was from um, a monk, and he said to me, "There is no moment where there is no struggle in any moment that is too great for you." Mm. There's no moment that is too difficult for you. The struggle is not in the moment. The Mm. struggle sits outside of the moment. So I really didn't give that much thought. And my story, some listeners will know my personal story or maybe no one knows my personal story, but my son... um, And you've got four kids. I have four kids. I used to play that game Catch Your Attention. When I first started playing that game Catch Your Attention... It hit me in the face. I had no idea. I remember the moment clearly. I was standing at the... I just learnt mindfulness. I'm standing in the laundry. I'm at the washing machine. I've got dirty clothes everywhere. Like little kids produce so much dirty clothes. There's dirty clothes. There's clean clothes in baskets. Like there's just washing everywhere. And I remember standing at that washing machine and it was like... All of a sudden, the volume got turned up. As it was like my first experience of consciousness. Like I heard my thoughts out loud and it was like, I'm so tired. I'm too busy. I have too many children, not enough money, not enough time. And it was like all of a sudden, I'm like, I just run that story all day. Yeah. There's no happiness in that. What, like I have just missed, I don't know how old my kids were at the time, but I'm missing their life because I'm just in that story all day. And until that moment in that, uh, standing in that laundry, I'd never heard that. I had never heard that wow. story in my head. And it was like, I learned mindfulness. It's like, here you go. Let's show you what you are running yeah. in your mind. These are the stories that These you keep your telling yourself. These are stories that you're telling yourself and you're living in the stress and the energy and the feelings of that story and wondering why you're questioning if motherhood's enough for you. And it's so funny, isn't it? Because I've gone this, off track here, by that's the way. All right, I will, we'll get back I will circle to it. back. The stories we tell ourselves are so important because that negative narrative ends up driving your reality. If you're thinking your whole life, I'm ugly, everyone is repulsed by me or, you know, I'm boring or I don't have any friends. That becomes your reality. That becomes the way you walk in the world with the shoulders down, with no confidence. And I know it's hard because a lot of our stories come from an experience. That's how we make sense of stories from our childhood, from all this kind of stuff. But when you know this, it's like replace that story with one that's going to help you. Like, what, yeah. what do you want your story to be? Your story yeah. can be anything you want. Yeah. You know, you've got the pen, you write the script. Yeah. Dr. Joe Dispenza, he's, he he's has a, friend a quote. Of mine. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, he has a quote that, you know, your personality determines your personal yeah. reality. And what he means by personality is the thoughts that you run and the feelings and the emotions and your posture and how you show up and what you bring to the table determines your personal reality. And my personal reality as a mum with little kids was I'm too tired, I'm too busy, I've got too many kids, I don't have enough money. That made up my personality, you know, victim, whinging, frustrated, heavy, tired, that made up my personality. So yes, my personal reality was staying in the laundry most of the day, you know. Um, That's all I could see. That's all I could experience in that moment. I wanted to say just quickly um, to lead up to your story is that when I did hear it, you know, it's interesting because I see sometimes these teachers and then they get this situation in their life where they have to use all the tools that they've ever learned in a situation that is something that they probably never thought that they'd go through. Mm. And, you know, you have a story that encompasses that. Yeah, yes. I wish I didn't have the story, Um, but I do have the story and that's a mother of four children and um, six, nearly seven years ago now, my son, he was two weeks shy of his 14th birthday, went to the beach with a group of friends. You know, we dropped him down there, a local beach, and um, he uh, called to be picked up 
you know, not long after we dropped him off and to our frustration, you know, we've just dropped you off at the beach. <laughs> you can wait. Um, and in his waiting time, he jumped off a pier with the other kids who were also jumping off the pier, but he's um, jumped either higher or he's heavier or however it's worked, he's hit his head on the, on the sand and broken his C5, C6 vertebrae and sustained a spinal cord injury that left him quadriplegic, no feeling and movement from the chest and shoulders down. And I don't know, it's like in an instant, like even as I tell that story, I'm immediately transported to the day, to the, you know, moment where you're told um, that there's been an accident. And it's, it's so incredible to think that one minute your life is going down a particular path and another moment it's going in a completely different direction. And I can say that because, no, I didn't break my neck, but when your son does, the entire family world completely shifts in that moment. And, you know, quadriplegia is something that there's so many tentacles to it. It affects so many things from the house that you live in to, um, you know, the holidays you go on to how you feed the family, how you feed Will, how you care that, you know, it's like having a permanent newborn baby all over again. So, you know, I sort of say to people, and this, this connects to my practice of mindfulness. I had been a mindfulness practice, uh, practitioner for, oh, 20 odd years before Will's accident. And I I believed I took mindfulness seriously and I really understood it. And I remember a night that Will was in um, a coma in ICU, so he'd swallowed a lot of water at the beach and they, they were unsure if he was going to make the night. And it's, it's crazy in ICU. I had never had a family member in ICU, but you don't actually get to stay the night so it's like, how do you as a parent go home when your kid's in a coma in ICU? I couldn't, I really couldn't get my head around that. So I didn't go home. I just walked the hall, the corridor, and I did a, a mindful meditation, a walking meditation. And there's all different, as you would know, there's all different types of meditations. Mm. I don't actually use mindfulness meditation very often. Mm. I maybe use it to land into a moment, but I don't use it as a, a, as a practice. Um, so for the audience members, what a mindfulness meditation looks like is, it's like giving your attention a job. So you hold your attention on maybe your feet and then your hips and then somewhere else. And for hours, I just held my attention. I went from my feet to my knees, to my hips, to my breath, to my shoulders. And it was simply as a way to keep the attention busy on something so it couldn't go off onto the stories of what if he dies or what if he survives? What does this look like mm. for us? And it was like, I can't go to those stories. I cannot attach to this moment, if I let my attention just once go to, why didn't we pick him up when he asked to be picked up? Why didn't we, why did we even let him go to the beach? Why did we not give him more safety about that? I couldn't go there. And so I dug into the tools that I had been taught to hold the attention in the present moment with no thought about anything. And I had this clear moment where I thought, oh, oh, this is mindfulness. Now I get it. And now I truly get what it means to be in a moment, just in that moment. And the way I describe it is that what, well, I know I'm jumping all over the place because there's so many yeah, things yeah, yeah. I could talk about. But at the time of my son's accident, one of my very close and dear friends was in her final stages of MND. Mm. And um, I remember contacting her as soon as, and she'd lost her voice, so she was talking through a machine going, how do I do this? Like, how do you do this? How, you know, from the money to the care to the equipment? To, and she said, you just, you just will. You'll just find a way to be able to do this. 
And a lot of people, I used to put her on a pedestal for, oh my gosh, the way you cope with MND. People put me on a pedestal because of, you know, you've got a son with quadriplegia and you're out building a business. But this is a thing that I want people to really know. I feel very passionate about this, is that life is really rugged Mm. for all of us. It's really difficult. And I feel like we leave our house every day and we step out into this storm. We get knocked around in this storm. We get wet, we get bowled over and we come home and it was not great. It wasn't fun. I was a bit cold. I was a bit wet, but I get up and I do it again the next day. For some people, something happens and in a moment that storm gets upgraded to a hurricane. And when you're in a hurricane, you have no choice but to find this stillness in the centre or you Mm. will not survive it. Mm. And so it's it's very easy to finally get still, finally get present, not attached to shit, because if you did, you would not survive. But we hold those people up. Oh, wow, you were able to find your calm in quadriplegia. It's like I could never do it when I was at home with little kids in a Mm. storm. I was just getting beaten up all day. Yeah, I was learning mindfulness and I was still in the crappy stories. It is very difficult when there's not something forcing you to really like get present and get still. It's very difficult in this busy world to make these changes Mm. because we're so habitually, we go out, we don't love our life. We get, you know, we want to be fitter. We want to be, you know we want a promotion, we want to have deeper connections with our partners, uh, we get to the end of the day, we put on Netflix and we start a new day again. Mm. When there's something forcing you, it's a lot, I don't know if easier is a word, but through survival you have to dig into that presence or you just wouldn't be able to survive it. So in a way you know, amazing. You really use mindfulness as a tool when your son was injured. But I want people to know I couldn't do it when I didn't have that. It was really tough. It's really tough in today's world. And I want to know, because it's such a full on story and what you did, you know, using those Mm. mindful practices is unbelievable. I really wanted to speak to you about like how you managed to like stay in the stay there, you know. Yeah. Okay. Now we're linking right back to that question I never answered when I sort of marked up what that monk said to me where he was like, there's no challenge that's too great in a moment. The struggle sits on either side of the moment. And I, I never really gave that a lot of thought when I was taught that. But I remember in the hospital room, in the hospital, I would stand at the door of Will's room and really, I really thought about that concept a lot, that there's no struggle that's too great in this moment. Because I'm like, I'm about, I I have to walk into a room where my son has no feeling or movement from the chest and the shoulders down. Like, that's struggle, right? That's pretty full on. But when I really looked at it, I'm like, that is not the struggle. All I am doing is I'm walking into a room and having a conversation with my son. Mm. He's lying in a bed. I'm standing next to the bed and I'm having a conversation. Where the struggle comes into is when I go to what's his future going to look like? How are we going to survive this? You know, how does he feel? Is he depressed? You know, how could I have let this happen? That is a struggle. And I genuinely, you know, sometimes I think people are like, oh, you're creating good stories, you know, that sound really good. I'm like, no, I genuinely had to do this to survive. I remember that I had like this light bulb moment one time where I was like, okay, if there is no struggle in the present moment, if, if there's no, no moment that I can't cope with, then if I just show up to each moment as an isolated moment between now and the day I die, then I can do that. Like I can do that. Mm. As long as I don't go to all the stuff that sits outside of that moment, I'm going to be all right. Nothing that I can meet in that moment is going to be too difficult for me. And I ha- I have had moments, I developed a, a strategy where if will, if something was happening in that moment that was really hard, and this sounds the most ridiculous story, but one of Will's... Um, 
saviours, I guess, was PlayStation after... Will was an incredible athlete. He never stopped moving. He was, you know, in the State 40 team, an Australian BMX rider, and, you know, he was really active. So my greatest fear was how does this kid just do stillness now? And PlayStation was really good. We had this modified remote controller. We got it when he was in the hospital and it became a bit of a security blanket for Will. It was how he connected with Mm -hmm. people and got that competitiveness. But the supplier of this remote control was just so um, flaky and the remote controls themselves were fairly flaky. We had to get it from the States and they would break really quickly, but actually getting one was super difficult. So it was always this stress around if his remote control broke, mm. that is when like we all saw everything we were trying to ignore about quadriplegia would be in our face. You know, the fear, the stillness, the not belonging, the not being able to participate, the how are you going to fill your time just when I can't do anything? And so I'm sure now I look back, we were using this remote control as just a way to avoid our own pain. But if there was a moment where that remote broke and I really had to see Will's pain and I really had to feel that as a mum and I was in that moment, I would step to the left like I was stepping out of that moment and I would say to myself, this is not my journey. I cannot take this away from Will. I actually don't have the right to take this away from Will. It's his lessons. It's his learnings. Who am I to... He's on this earth. He has this injury and I don't know what's going to come of it but it's not, I'm, I don't get to take that away from him. You had to tell him that he wasn't going to walk again, didn't you? I was, I'm, I'm full honesty. I remember that day very clearly. Um, I walked into the Royal Children's Hospital. It was like, okay, at 10 o'clock, we're waking him up, bringing him out of a coma and telling him that he will never walk again. I was not great when he was in ICU. I really... <sighs> You know, you're his mum. Yes, Um, you know my husband was a lot better at that. You know, we had an incident. Quite now, I'm going to get emotional. I don't think I've spoken about it publicly, but we had a moment early on that Will was conscious in ICU, and um, he said to me, "Um, "You know, mum, like, take me away from this." And what he was trying to say to me was, like, use your meditation to <laughs> to take me away. <laughs> and so I started a visualisation where, and you would know that you take people out of the situation and you can, like, go up into, like, nothingness sort of thing. And the nurses thought that I was trying to talk him into dying and they thought I was trying to kill my son. And um, and there was a lot of conversation around me not being allowed in the room. Oh, God. And... It was um, a really difficult time. So I spent a lot of time in the corridor meditating whilst, you know, my husband was in the room with Will. And it came to the day that we had to tell him that he was never going to walk again. And um, I walked into the foyer of the Royal Children's Hospital And um, I actually just collapsed and was sobbing, which is not like me, despite the fact that I'm sobbing right now. And um, What's your baby, though? (laughs) Yeah. And I couldn't, I just couldn't process what that would feel like for him. Now, what I know now that, you know, I didn't know at the time, there's a lot of drugs and, you know, it's not like he's processing it like we're processing it sitting here. And um, I was just literally in the foyer and I was crying and a cleaner came up to me and sat with me. And then a 
you know, I was at a children's hospital. A, a lady came up with her own son and her own son was telling me that he um, had pretty much been in the hospital his entire life. He was allergic to all of these things and um, that he now was leaving the hospital and, you know, he's scared and, and I, I don't know, I wasn't even really listening to him but he was there and his mum was there and this cleaner was there and and all of a sudden I thought, what am I doing? Like, my son needs me, like, you know, and I'm here with these people and I was so grateful to them but I was like, no, I really have to, I really have to be with my son and so I wasn't there for the conversation um, and as it was, I don't think we really processed it the way that we w- would imagine it to be but, you know, the whole... The whole experience is why a practice like mindfulness is just so incredibly important and I feel like we've bastardised mindfulness in this world, you know, like we use it in television commercials and we, Mm. we use it as like, you know, have a relaxing bath you know, your mindful time. It's like, it's not, <laughs> yes. it's like, Here are three steps <laughs> to make you more mindful. Like, mindfulness is a very active practice. It's hard. Like it's hard to be in that moment and not, you know, go to those thoughts and hold your attention in the present moment and all of that stuff. And I just think my practice was like, just accelerated in that process, at the, in that in that period of time in the hospital, and I wish I didn't have to go through it, but it made me. It was better than any textbook I could have read or any course I could have done to actually learn how to do it, because I had to do it, or I just wouldn't have functioned. Do you believe in like a higher source or something beyond what we can see? I believe in energy. Mm. Um, I don't even know what that means when I say it, but I believe um, I have done a fair bit of study of the Joe Dispenza work. I really like his approach and how he explains energy and the frequency yes. that we sit in and how, um, you know, that operates definitely believe in that. I have to, I don't know what I think about a greater source, but believing there's something bigger than just us is so important, I believe, in getting perspective around what this whole crazy thing is that we're doing every day. Mm. I just don't know how to articulate it very well. Well, I mean, you know, I think that we are all energy. We come from kind of divine presence into this world that's like from singularity to duality and then in the duality is the thinking negative, positive, happiness, sadness. It's like we come into a world where there is, you know, opposing and then you go back up into that kind of oneness. But I wonder for you now... How is your son in the sense of usually what I find is the people that go through these traumas are stronger than the people who surround them. And I wonder, like, how has he journeyed through it? I mean, he's incredible. Remember, he was 14 years old. Yeah. You know, he had, I remember in the um, hospital, we never left him alone. Um, so, there's not really a bed, but there's sort of this fold-out couch that was always someone with him. And he, at night, would get a lot of nightmares about the drowning. And and I remember saying to him once, well, how do you deal with that, Will? What do you do? And he said, you know what? I just remind myself I, that my head's on this pillow, that my body's on this mattress, that there's blankets over me, that I'm here. Mm-hmm. I'm not in the water. And I was like, wow, like that, that's what we're trying to get people to do, like ground themselves in this moment. You're not in that conversation that happened three hours ago. You're not yet in that event that hasn't happened. You're just right here. So I think we're all on a spectrum of how naturally we are able to stay present, be present. And Will's always been incredible at that. 
And where I sit as a mum, he looks like he's doing so well. Like he doesn't have anxiety, depression. He's got a great social life. He's a functioning member of the community. And I think people want a different answer to that because they want to know the deep conversations we've had, but it's very difficult where I sit. I don't want to ask him questions around something that I don't know if that's even in his head. Mm. Like, yeah, you I don't, don't want to ask him, there. like, yeah. how do you deal with, like, the fact that you, you know, will never be able to do that again? Oh, well, I've never really thought about yeah. it. It wasn't painful until you've now brought it up. <laughs> Thank you for that. Absolutely. So I just try and raise him like my other children, really. Mm. Um, and, you know, our, all of our kids, everyone's kids have stuff that they go through. Everyone. That's painful for them in the moment. You know, we received a lot of, um, after Will's accident, I would quite often write on Facebook until we reached a time where Will didn't want to be so public. Um, And we would get a lot of commentary through that. And I remember receiving a message from someone who was saying how inspirational Will's story was and that they had not left home for 10 years because of an extreme fear. They were from a different country, an extreme fear of woodworm, which I presume is like a termite. Yeah. They hadn't left the house for 10 years. And I remember receiving that message thinking, it's not just quadriplegia that keeps you, you know, stuck and that keeps you immobile. Um, I think anxiety can be paralyzing. I think, you know, fear, all of these things, there's so many things that can keep us stuck. So many things. And, And Will's body is stuck, but he, his spirit, his consciousness, his awareness, it's so alive in him that, you know. It's so beautiful. You know, I remember Earlier this year, I interviewed Scarlett Lewis, whose son Jesse was murdered in the Sandy Hook massacre, like a grade one Mm. boy shot to death by the killer. He was five. And people would say to her, like, don't you think, like, why me? Why did it have to be my son's classroom and this and that? And she goes, no, I think, why not me? Mm. Because every one of us has suffering in our life. It's Mm. going to happen, yes, on different levels, but also the way that we tackle suffering. I mean, something that could happen to you and I and we would think, okay, we could move past that, Mm. could be so full on for that person. I think you giving these strategies for mindfulness and hearing this conversation today is just so unbelievably important because... I just don't think we could live life saying, you know, why me, why me? Because if we're always doing that and we get into that kind of comparison trap, well, there's our suffering right there. Yeah. I think we don't know enough how much we create our own suffering Mm. and that I remember after Will's accident, a friend um, lost a family member in a really unfortunate circumstance and there was fault on behalf of, um, you know, the paramedics and and she was talking to me about wanting to really know, well, what was said by the paramedics and what was done and what wasn't done and why didn't they do this and really look into it. And she said to me, you know, not everyone understands why I need that information, but you get it, you understand it. And I didn't say anything to her, but I thought, no. I don't understand it because I don't want to bring that suffering into my life. I don't, I have never heard what happened at the beach because why do I want to be able to go back to that picture? Why do Mm. I want to go back to that story? That story is not relevant. I can't change that story. You know, Will has talked about his story on a podcast. I haven't listened to it. Mm. I don't need to know that. That's going to create suffering in me. It's going to give me something to attach to, something for my attention to go to. There's no answers in that. I, I can't change yeah. it. So why sit on it? It's why so look true. at it? Why know the details of it? Why ask myself, could I have done differently? I can't. It's gone. That moment happened. Mm. And so I love the concept of radical acceptance mm. and that radical acceptance to me is accepting something that you probably shouldn't have to. Why should a mother accept that her son is never going to move or feel anything from the chest and shoulders down? For God's sake, we can put someone on the moon, but we can't 
fix a bruise on a spinal cord injury the size of a pinhead. Wow. You know, like why I should not have to accept that, but I choose to accept it. It doesn't take the pain away, but it takes the suffering away. Mm. The suffering is the stories. The why hasn't science done something and if only this and what if that and they don't understand and, you know, it's not fair because of this. There is nothing to be gained in that. doesn't mean I don't feel the pain. doesn't mean I, I really think we get mucked up in today's world by thinking we have to sit in these. It's either suffering or it's gratitude and positivity and it's like it doesn't have to be one or the other. Mm. That's what I love about acceptance. Yes, absolutely. I wonder, you know, with anxiety, a lot of people obviously go through that. What are the strategies that you use yourself and that you teach to people about that? It might be something like they have to talk in front of a group of people Mm. that can be so shocking for a lot of people might be just at work you know they go around in a circle and their heart's beating out of their chest when they know it's their turn or even if a child's listening like sitting up in class and and saying a speech or something like that you know just little things or like the anxiety of going on a date or whatever it is absolutely you know we too often think we can say to an anxious person, don't worry about that. Because for yes. us, it's like, well, I don't care speaking <laughs> in public. So don't, just don't worry yeah. about it. You'll be fine. No, you'll be fine. Like, no one, no, don't, you know, it's like... Imagine the more <laughs> in the nude. Isn't that what people say or something like that? No, it's like, so the first thing that I always encourage people to do is to really recognise that it's real and it's okay and that they're normal. Mm. And, but... I think we don't do this enough. I really, when we're dealing with that anxiousness or fear or doubt, my starting place is to get into the body, not into shifting my thoughts first. Like, let me get my breath under control. Let me get my posture under control. So let me just not try and think positively, not try and go, I can do it, not try and cheerlead my way out of it breathe my way out of it, get that breath slower, longer, deeper. I love um, something simple like psychic sighing breath work, which is two breaths in and a sigh out. Like, let me know how to use my breath to calm that physiology down. Once that physiology is calm, then I can get into a more helpful physiology. So if I have to talk to a group, a helpful physiology might be standing up taller, looking, you know, smiling a little bit, using my hands a bit more. And then I try and get them to reframe it, you know, into something like, you know, I always like to say, go to the evidence in your mind that you've done the work. An anxious mind loves to know that you're prepared or you've done work. Mm. So it's like, I've practiced. I know what I need to say here. I might get it wrong. I might make a mistake, but what I have to say is important. So not going to that toxic positivity and just making it normal to make a mistake and get it wrong, but getting that physiology back in order. Emma, what's the best advice that you have ever been given? My best advice has been someone saying to me that people are not really thinking about you as much as you think they are. Because have you noticed how much we are stuck in our own heads about our own stuff? But what we're stuck in our heads about, I always say there's three in, particularly in that performance space, and we're all in a performance space, you know, like the world is high pressure, high expectation, no matter what we do. There's three key things that will really drive that fear and doubt and anxiousness. It's fear of failure, fear of getting it wrong, Mm. making a mistake. It's like this obsessive focus on the outcome, looking at the deadline and for an athlete, their stats and, you know, where you're at compared to someone else. But the biggest one, the biggest one is fear of other people's opinions. And I have done this before. I've had a room full of AFL players. If I ask them what they're most worried about out on the field, it's not losing. It's not making a mistake. It's letting their teammates down. What will my teammates think? What will the coach think? What will my family and friends think if I don't play well? And so we have to understand that the caveman's greatest threat to his survival was, you know, a lack of shelter and a lack of food. So he got really good at hunting and and building shelter and building fire. 
our greatest threat to our survival is being out from the tribe and, mm. and being rejected and being on our own. And so the strategy that we have created to deal with that is a really self-critical mind that is trying to say, let me tell you all the reasons why someone could reject you and someone could judge you so that you don't do them. They could laugh at you if you get out there and make a mistake with, you know, your presentation. They might think you don't look good in those clothes. They might think you're fatter than them. They might think, you know, this. So, Our self-critical mind wants to tell us all the bad things about ourselves. And when someone said to me, people are not really thinking about you as much as, you know, you're thinking about you, I just really quite often drop into that. Mm. They're actually not thinking about me. They're so trapped in their own fear. They're not thinking about me. Um, I love that. Yeah. So, I don't know. Fear of other people's opinions is a massive Mm. one. That's where I love acceptance again, accepting them. Well, they might not like me. Yeah. And, and that's okay. I'm going to okay. be okay. What's something that you wish for yourself? I wish I could learn um, to manage for other people's opinion. <laughs> no, I'll tell you how it shows up for me. I get a lot of people reaching out to me and I feel like I get to the end of the day and I've said no to more people than I've helped. And I really struggle with that and I struggle with the overwhelm of that and that people will think that I don't care about them and that's why I'm not getting back to them or it's, it's, there's a lot of layers and I would love to be okay with saying no without dropping into that fear of um, what people think and what that means and I would like to be more comfortable in that space. Mm. It's a work in progress. Yes. That's a hard one because I actually sometimes have that as well and I think like, but I also like have a family I need to attend to and things yeah. outside like, and I would hate to think that someone thinks I don't care. Like mm. if it's a stranger, I don't know them, yeah. but they're contacting me. They're, I, I get it. Mm. It can be hard. Yeah. I wonder, do you have a favourite prayer or saying or mantra? Um... I say a lot to myself right here, right now. Mm. Um, And that started in the hospital with Will, where I would say, right here, right now, I'm just walking into this room. Right here, right now, I'm just having this conversation. That's all that's happening. And um, it came out of necessity to hold me in that moment. But it really reminds me that this is all that's happening now. I can't control what your listeners think of this. I can't control, you know the end product or I can't control any of that stuff. So right here, right now is really helpful for me. Um, In terms of a prayer, I just, I'm nearly addicted to the feeling of just the empty space of Mm. meditation. I don't sit on a mantra or anything when I meditate. Um, I love going into that blackness of nothingness. That's a really Mm. happy place for me. What is a life of greatness to you? Oh, wow. Um, A life of greatness to me is a life where I have served people in a way that actually facilitates change for them. You know, I, since Will's accident... Well, before Will's accident, when I started studying mindfulness, I had a full-time job. I had four little kids. I would study until sort of three, four in the morning. And I never really did the coffee mornings with the mums at school. And the, you know, my kids, I'm not the mum who's baking the great cakes for the fate. And like, there's a lot of stuff that I dropped (laughs) the ball on. And sometimes I feel like, you know, I'm maybe not going out enough with these people, but... A life of greatness to me is where I really have helped change someone. I Mm. love that. I love if I could help someone else become a little bit more present, then that feels pretty great to me. Well, I can tell you now in Murray that you are leading your life of greatness. Thank you. You, Thank you so much. important, can I say? Yeah. I get it wrong every day. Mm. Oh my gosh, like I get it wrong more than I get it right. I really want people to know that, that this is a practice for a reason. You know, you might get three minutes of your day right 
And that's great. Like you've got to work hard at this stuff mm. and keep, you know, reflecting and critiquing. And it's not about all of a sudden you live a mindful life. Um, you know, I get patches of mindfulness, right? And I get a lot of time not so right. A wise person said to me years ago when I was first learning this stuff, you'll need to watch your thoughts to the day you die. Absolutely. And it's true. It's a yeah. constant practice. But, yeah. you know, your wisdom helps with that. So thank you. Thank you thank so you for much. Having me. Apologies for the blubbering in oh, the middle. Oh, no. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Sarah. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Your Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my manifestation course and meditations, head to the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com or this week's episode show notes to find a link. If you love what you heard, we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. Listener.